0: All right, as you turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 9, 1 Corinthians chapter 9, your Bibles. In 1973, Burger King introduced a new ad slogan, campaign, and business philosophy of Have It Your Way in response to the dominant company at the time, McDonald's, and their very small set menu where you couldn't really make any adjustments. You just order what they prepared. Burger King wanted to cater to people who recognized that Kids are different. And in their terms, uh, uh, pickle-less Nicholas. You know, if little Nicholas doesn't want pickles on his hamburger, he should be able to tell his mom not to put pickles on my hamburger. And thus began, or at least uh, continued, if it had already began, this catering to the whims and desires and, and preferences of the consumeristic American palate. And uh, it's only expanded from there with variety and accommodations uh, across just about every product line you can find, chips and craft beers and colas and, and candy, probably uh, best uh, signified in, in the Oreo. Like, what is an Oreo anymore? When I was a kid, an Oreo was just a simple black and white cookie that maybe had a normal amount of that heart-healthy, delicious stuffing, or the glorious double-stuffed. I remember later in childhood, they came out with a fudge covered, which was awesome, but this, past, uh, this, this, this year, rather, they, they've come out with three new flavors, cherry cola, pina colada, and kettle corn, to go along with over 50 other flavors of Oreos, all trying to appeal to every single whim, taste, desire, and preference of our palate. Uh, we get this. This is what we want. This is what we desire. And companies now cater to that, to give us what we want and desire. It's true in our culture. It's not true in all cultures, uh, going to McDonald's in China trying to order something off menu led to a five-minute conversation with the manager about whether, whether I could really just have a cup of ice because it wasn't something that they normally gave out. But it's definitely true in our culture. And, and I'm just referring to things that we want or desire. I'm not even getting on things that uh, we perceive as our rights, where if we don't get what we perceive to be our right, we will literally go to war over that. Um, It's the American way. And so uh, what we have to understand or what we have to ask ourselves sometimes is, is us demanding our rights or is us living our lives consumed with everything being perfectly catered to our every taste and desire, is that always the best way to live? Are there ever situations in which it is preferable to sacrifice what is good, maybe even what is our right, for something that is better? Let's walk through 1 Corinthians 9 and see what we can learn from Paul as an example for us. Beginning in verse 1, Am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are not you my workmanship in the Lord? If to others I am not an apostle, at least I am to you. For you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord." This is my defense to those who would examine me. Do we not have the right to eat and drink? Do we not have the right to take along a believing wife, as do the other apostles and the brothers of the Lord and Cephas? Or is it only Barnabas and I who have no right to refrain from working for a living? Who serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard without eating any of its fruit? Or who tends a flock without getting some of the milk? Do I say these things on human authority? Does not the law say the same? For it is written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. Is it for the oxen that God is concerned? Does he not speak entirely for our sake? It was written for our sake because the plowman should plow in hope and the thresher thresh in hope of sharing in the crop. If we have sown spiritual things among you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? If others share this this rightful claim on you, do we not even more? Nevertheless, we have not made use of this right, but we endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. Do you not know that those who are employed in the temple service get their food from the temple, and those who serve at the altar share in the sacrificial offerings? In the same way, the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. But I have made no use of any of these rights, nor am I writing these things to secure any such provision." I would rather die than have anyone deprive me of my ground for boasting. For if I preach the gospel, that gives me no ground for boasting. For necessity is laid upon me. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. For if I do this of my own will, I have a reward. But if not of my own will, I am still entrusted with a stewardship. What then is my reward? That in my preaching, I may present the gospel free of charge, so as not to make full use of my right in the gospel. Father, we thank you so much for your, your word that it proclaims the reality of who you are and the hope that we have in the gospel of Jesus Christ. However that needs to fall and examine and encourage or convict everyone who's gathered here today, Father, we pray you would do so. By your power, do this deep soul work that we need so that Christ may be glorified We thank you for loving us enough to do this and not leave us as we are, and we ask and pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. Now, I mentioned last Sunday that chapters 8, 9, and 10 work together as one section discussing this this topic of should we eat meat that's been offered to pagan idols, and Paul walked through chapter 8, kind of discussing with these people who were called the stronger brothers, those with knowledge Who saw no problem in eating meat offered to idols because they knew idols weren't real gods, um, and how they should be considered of their weaker brothers who were raised in a pagan culture where offering or eating meat offered to idols was idolatry, practicing in idolatry. They, They had this association that they just couldn't immediately get rid of. And so, in order to love their weaker brother, let's stronger brothers not eat meat that's been offered in these pagan rituals. As as a demonstration of love, while your brothers are, are growing and maturing, they're probably less mature in the faith, they haven't been Christians for very long, while they're learning what you've already learned, let's demonstrate our love toward them in such a way that we won't eat this meat. Let's give them room. Let's not lead them into sin, the brother for whom Christ died. Don't sin against your brother or sin against Christ by flaunting your freedoms, even though you have this knowledge and they don't have this knowledge. And Paul ended chapter 8 with this this personal vow, I will not eat meat of any kind. I will adopt a vegetarian lifestyle if that's the best demonstration of love to my brother. And so as we move into chapter 9, you can all already kind of see Paul uh, anticipating some kind of pushback. It seems like he's chasing this unrelated rabbit of paying ministers or not paying ministers. But when you see chapter 9 in light of chapter 8, Paul has a two-fold strategy. Primarily, he's continuing to give an example from his life to these stronger Christians about how Paul having it his way is not really how Paul arranged his life. He had a greater concern. Loving his brothers? Yes. The free proclamation and spread of the gospel? An even bigger yes. That's what he was all about. So Paul is defending also his standing as an apostle and his curious decision to not be supported financially by the church. What we find through all of this is Paul saying no to good things in order to say yes to better things. He begins in verse 1 and 2 by asserting his identity as an apostle. Verse 1, Am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are you not my workmanship in the Lord? If to others I am not an apostle, at least I am to you. For you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. You could almost imagine Paul's tone flowing from the expected response he would get from the arrogant believers in Corinth in chapter 8. As Paul elevates love of the weaker brother, it's so important to give up his freedom to eat meat of any kind. The arrogant ones may say something like, wait, Paul, aren't you in charge? Aren't you the apostle? Aren't you the guy who started this church? Aren't you the one with all the authority and all the knowledge? Why are you giving up your freedoms and rights for the sake of these weaker brothers? Just tell them this is true and this is not true and, and impose your will upon them. That's typically how religious philosophers and religious leaders in the pagan culture of the Corinth acted. So Paul, do what everybody else has always done. You're in charge. You lay down the law. You take charge of this thing. And Paul has to immediately defend his apostleship because Paul's willingness to love the weaker brother was so strong because he was willing to appear wishy-washy to eat meat around some people and not meat around other people because Paul was doing something that was so countercultural to typical religious leaders then it caused his apostleship to be called into question. So Paul starts off by saying, yes, I'm free. Nobody's making me do this. I am an apostle. I've seen the resurrected Jesus, which is one of the, the necessity, necessary qualifications for being an apostle, a capital A apostle. Um, and even if you, others don't agree that I'm an apostle, you in Corinth, you know that I'm an apostle because you are alive in Christ. You are, Corinth, you are evidence, Paul would say, because I came to the city proclaiming the gospel. You believe the gospel. And now there's a church. You are evidence, if nothing else, that I'm an apostle of Jesus Christ. You know who I am. Now, Paul's defense of his apostleship is actually not going to be fully effective because this issue comes back up in 2 Corinthians. But it's a constant issue because Paul was so different from the typical religious leaders and authoritarian figures in their culture. He's constantly had to defending who he was to them. But Paul, what they would have to learn is that Paul was not in this to serve himself, to get all the perks he could get for himself. He, by God's grace, was others-oriented. And this really shows up later, right after this section where Paul asserts his rights. So let's look first where Paul asserts his rights. In verses 3 through 14, Paul is going to give us a list of his rights and then five reasons why he had these rights and why he could be supported by the local church. But first, his rights in verse 3. This is my defense to those who would examine me. And these are all rhetorical questions. Do we not have the right to eat and drink? Yes. Do we not have the right to take a long believing wife as do the other apostles and the brothers of the Lord in Cephas? Or is it only Barnabas and I who have no right to refrain from working for a living? Part of what made this a sticky situation for the early church is this was all brand new. The church was just being birthed. They were just in the first handful of years. There was no denominational history. There was no tradition about how the church pays ministers or not pays ministers, supports their workers. They had nothing to fall back on. There's no books, there's no websites they could go to or blogs about how other people do this. This is all being created on the fly. And so that made it a little bit difficult because Paul's position as a freelance missionary really had never existed in the church. In the same way going from city to city, planting church to church, it had never happened. So how do you deal with this enigma that is Paul? How do you support someone like Paul? They were trying to figure all these things out on the fly. And so it was common for traveling itinerant religious teachers or philosophers to be supported with food and drink, to be given meals, to be supported along their way as they go from city to city to speak, to to be supported in such a way that they could take their wives with them if Paul had a wife. He didn't have a wife, but the brothers of Jesus and Peter did. to to be supported so that they could bring along their wives and their wives could be there to support them and to receive enough support to be able to do that, to be even able to work part-time jobs. So Paul is asking these rhetorical questions, fully expecting a yes. Paul's no different than these guys. He has a right to be supported in this way, but to clear up potential confusion, he's going to give them five reasons why he's entitled to support. The first is common practice. Verse 7, Who serves as a soldier at his own expense who plants a vineyard without eating any of its fruit. It was very common practice for workers to enjoy their wages. Everybody knew this. We know this. All these common occupations that he lists that are very familiar to Paul's writing have this clear expectation. The person who labors reaps the benefits of their labor. A soldier who's protecting and serving a population of people isn't expected to go get another job in order to provide for his physical needs. Those needs are supposed to be met by the local people through taxes and support in governmental institutions so that the soldiers freed up to protect and serve. A farmer takes part of his crop to the market to sell and make a living, but he keeps part for him and his family. A shepherd does the same thing with his sheep. Everyone understood these common examples. Now, we're not talking about extravagant occupations or lifestyles. These are very menial lifestyles, but their basic necessities are met. So, common practice. Secondly, another reason is scriptural example. Look at verse 8. Do I say these things on human authority? Does not the law say the same? For it is written in the law of Moses, You shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. Is it for the oxen that God is concerned? Does he not speak entirely for our sake? It was written for our sake, because the plowman should plow in hope, and the thresher thresh in hope of sharing in the crop. Paul goes to the Old Testament, Deuteronomy 25, verse 4, and gives an example that on the surface may seem like a strange way of interpreting the Old Testament. This one verse, do not muzzle an ox while it treads out the grain. Like it might seem like Paul is proof texting the Old Testament. Let's see, I need a verse to help uh, uh, substantiate my claim that I should be supported as a minister. Oh, there's a verse in the Old Testament about feeding an animal why it works. I'll just rip that out of context and apply it to my situation. Like that may seem what Paul is doing, but Paul understood the Old Testament better than anyone else in that day, probably. And so this idea of these two oxens or maybe a large ox uh, 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 tethered to two to, to stone wheels that have grain between them, and as the ox walks around, the grain is crushed and it falls at its feet, and the ox is able to eat the grain that falls at its feet. It would have been unusually cruel to not allow the oxen to eat some of the grain that falls at its feet. Paul understood that God didn't give this command for the oxen. Martin Luther said if God had given the command for the oxen, or, or rather God didn't give this command for the oxen because the oxen can't read. It's not as though you, if you kept the oxen from eating the grain, they're going to get their feelings hurt, or they're going to unionize to, to strike for better labor laws. The oxen are not going to do that. They're oxen. They're dumb animals. It wasn't written for the oxen, Paul says. It was written for us and the oxen benefit from the laws that God wrote for us. In fact, if you go back to read Deuteronomy 24 and 25, it's a bunch of laws about dignity and justice for the human worker. This one verse about oxen actually seems to be out of place, out of context, because the whole section is about dignity and justice for the human laborer. What God seems to be doing and Paul understands is it's an argument from lesser to greater, much like Jesus does in Matthew 6. When he says, we don't have to be worried or anxious about our physical needs being met by our Father in heaven because he feeds the birds of the air and he clothes the grass of the field. If your Father in heaven cares about grass and birds, how much more valuable are you? Don't you think he'll take care of all of your needs? If God has written laws of justice that even take into account oxen, how much more is he taking into account his laborers? much more valuable than simply simple animals. So Old Testament scriptural justification. Third reason why it's okay to support Paul. Common sense justice, or you might say intrinsic justice. Verse 11, if we have sown spiritual things among you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? If others share this rightful claim on you, do we not even more? Paul has been investing spiritual labors in these believers in order for them to reap spiritual eternal reward. The highest, greatest, most treasured reward are spiritual eternal rewards. And that's what a minister of the gospel is laboring to produce in your life. Not that there's not a concern for physical needs. There is. So you lose your job. You're concerned about paychecks. But what we need more than bigger paychecks is to make sure that money is not our treasure and that we live a life of dependent trust and generosity about whatever our Father gives us to manage. Physical illness comes and goes, but no matter how much we pray to be healed, and we should pray to be healed, you're still going to die. So more than being healed from physical illness, is your soul ready for eternity? Because you could die today. You're storing up treasures in heaven. And so Paul is investing himself, giving himself to invest in these people for these greater and higher rewards and fruit. Isn't it common sense rightness or justice that he reap lesser and more temporary earthly rewards? By having his needs met so that he can be freed up for the sake of the gospel? Again, he's not making the case for an extravagant lifestyle. He's not asking for a $56 million jet while he has $40 million in net worth. It's not what Paul's doing here. He's just expecting his needs to be met. The fourth reason, the custom of the temple. Verse 13. Do you not know that those who are employed in the temple service get their food from the temple and those who serve at the altar share in the sacrificial offerings? It was temple custom, Jewish and pagan, for people who labor at the temple to be supported by the offerings of the temple. Everybody knew this. It wasn't that Paul labored in a temple, but he did religious work. So religious laborers are typically supported by religious people. And then the fifth and last statement in his defense, verse 14, is "It's the command of Christ. In the same way the Lord Jesus commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. Saving the strongest part of his argument for last. Oh by the way, Jesus said do it. Probably referring to passages like Luke 10:7 where Jesus is sending out the 72 two by two and he said, "Remain in the same house, eating and drinking what they offer for the workers worthy of his wages." Paul would make the same connection for the church of Ephesus when he writes Timothy in 1 Timothy 5:17 and 18, the elders who are good leaders are to be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who work hard at preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, do not muzzle an ox while it is treading out grain, and the worker is worthy of his wages. Deuteronomy 25.4 and Luke 10.7. So when you take this five-fold argument into account, you're left with this undeniable, airtight, biblically strong case that for those who labor as vocational ministers in their role as a, a missionary, an elder, a pastor, it is expected, commanded, good and right that they be supported in a way that their physical needs are taken care of so they don't have to find other ways to make money and they're freed up to focus on the work of spreading the gospel in and through the local church. As a local church, all local churches, we need to feel the full weight of that admonition. Before we move on to Paul renouncing his rights, like, see the full weight of what Paul is renouncing. That he has this airtight biblical case that even Jesus himself commanded, that he is is absolutely entitled to receive support from this church. So that we understand as a local church that part of the reason we give tithes and offerings is a demonstration of gratitude for what God has given you, yes, but not just that. It is a demonstration of trust that the Lord who gives you, the Father who gives you this day your daily bread is going to give you this day your daily bread every day. So you don't have to worry about holding on to everything, not, not believing He's going to give in the future to take care of you every single day. Yes, it is a demonstration of trust. But it's also to support those called and gifted for vocational gospel ministry. There's no verse in Scripture that says pastors, elders, missionaries should all be volunteer. Or should all be bivocational. God has gifted the local church with the fivefold ministry of leaders in order to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. Ephesians 4, 11, and 12 tells us. The apostle, prophet, evangelist, shepherd, teacher. He's given those to the church as a gift in order to equip the saints for the work of the ministry so that the local church is not a bunch of people standing around watching the professionals perform, but that the local church is a mobilized, energized family of servant missionaries equipped and trained to go out scattering, gathering in their culture to spread the gospel. And some of these people are freed up in order to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, to have time to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. And it's been best in the history of the church in most situations for these servants to be supported in some way to give them time to do that. And so these passages and Paul's explanation and defense of why this is right and good should cause every single local church to step back and ask themselves, are we doing that? Like not just a question for the financial team, but because we're all a part of this, we all should answer this question. Are we doing that? So before moving on, feel the weight of this in much the same way the Corinthian church may have felt the weight. No doubt about it, they could and should be supporting Paul so that his needs were met. Especially in our culture, where sometimes the mentality in the local church has been more like an elected official. We pay your salary, so you do the job that we want you to do. That's not the mentality of Scripture. Scripture. We give our tithes and offerings, not to pay the bills, but out of gratitude and trust in God. And then we as a local church take what God gives us through the giving of his people and say, how do we want to use these resources? Who do we want to support? How much do we want to support them? Paul had those same rights, but his conviction was not to utilize these rights. He had a higher purpose in mind. In other words, he said no to something good, so that he could say yes to something better. So let's see that Paul asserting his freedom. Verse 12, the second part of verse 12. Nevertheless, we have not made use of this right, but we endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. Verse 15, but I have made no use of any of these rights, nor am I writing these things to secure any such provision. So this is not some kind of passive-aggressive way to get what I want. It's not what I'm doing, Paul says. For I would rather die than have anyone deprive me of my ground for boasting. For if I preach the gospel, that gives me no ground for boasting. For necessity is laid upon me. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. For if I do this of my own will, I have a reward. But if not of my own will, I am still entrusted with a stewardship. What then is my reward? That in my preaching I may present the gospel free of charge so as not to make full use of my right in the gospel. The preeminent concern in Paul's life was the free proclamation and spread of the gospel. His whole life was ordained and ordered by that. His calling, conviction, was so strong, he says in verse 16, he's compelled to preach. He has no choice but to do this. The gospel message in Paul was a fire in his bones that was going to get out. The question for Paul was not whether he would give his life or not to the spread of the gospel. That was going to happen. The question for Paul is, what is my motivation? Am I doing this only because I'm compelled to do it? Or am I doing it willingly and freely and receiving the joy of doing it willingly and freely? His great desire was to be able to do that, not to let anything be a hindrance to the free spread and proclamation of the gospel. In fact, verse 15, he says, let me die rather than being able to boast in the free proclamation and spread of the gospel. Seriously, kill me before this doesn't happen. Paul was consumed by this. And as is clear in the passage, Paul had a conviction of not being supported financially by the church, but instead to be a bivocational tent maker. In fact, throughout Paul's letters, we find him receiving some support from the church in Philippi. He didn't ask for it, they just gave it. Other than that, he was not supported financially by any of the churches, but always worked as a tent maker. The question for us is this. Why would Paul feel like being supported financially by the churches, which he clearly established as good and right? Why would he believe that receiving that would be a hindrance to the free spread of the gospel? To get that, you have to know a little bit about the patronage system in the Greco-Roman culture. Someone in a position like Paul would have four different ways in which they could be financially supported. They could charge a fee. So before he comes to the city, say, I've got to have this much money, which is actually done by some Christian speakers, pastors, and leaders today. Secondly, they could enlist some wealthy patrons who would support them. They, in turn, would usually live with these wealthy patrons and also educate their children. Thirdly, they could beg. Or fourthly, they could have another job, like a tent maker. For Paul, the freest way to spread the gospel was for him to work another job, to be bivocational. What this allowed him to be is free, free from the obligation to appease whoever was supporting him, which was definitely an expectation in the Greco-Roman culture. We're supporting you. So you have to say this about this issue or take our side on this issue. And when you're leading a church that you're having to provide leadership, direction, and correction, you certainly do not want any group in the church to feel like they have preference over other groups because they have the ear of the leader because they are supporting the leader, providing for his needs. Paul says, I would rather die than have that happen. That there not be any strings attached. That no one has any prerogative over me other than Jesus Christ. I want the gospel to be free. So I'm willing to give up my right to be supported. One scholar wrote, for Paul, this lifestyle probably entailed him working all morning, taking the siesta part of the day where that culture and the the tropical type culture of the Mediterranean Sea would usually rest, go in the siesta part of the day and not rest, but go to the synagogue and proclaim the gospel and then go back to work. An exhausting lifestyle for which Paul boasts in, I am glad that I get to suffer like this for the sake of Christ. Not like Jeremiah, who kind of complained about how bad he had it. Paul's boasting in that. And just as local churches need to consider and heed verses 3 through 14, are we supporting our local ministers so they can be free from concern for physical needs and free to equip the saints? So now vocational ministers need to consider and heed this convictional choice of Paul. Are we being supported in a way that is causing an obstacle for the gospel? Is the pastor, minister, evangelist in any way motivated by his desire for more money, more support? If the pastor, evangelist, uh, um, um, elder, whoever, we want to reach more people. We want to grow the church. Is that to really glorify Christ and grow the kingdom of God? Or is that to get more people to have more money to get more support? Like Every guy has got to make sure that they're answering that question well. Every single vocational minister has to do something, do things, have accountability, have convictions that demonstrate that they're not in this for the money. So much money, by the way. But there's different ways that this can show up. Catering to reach certain people from certain uh, neighborhoods or income levels so that the church can have more money. Spending time with those who give the most so that they're happy and they don't leave and take their tithe and offering with them. Uh, Taking certain positions on certain issues that would make certain people happy because they're big givers. This is why we, everyone who's supported by the crossing, now and forever, we do not know and don't want to know who gives what. So that that's not ever a temptation. So that we don't have any temptation to treat anyone differently. Because our services aren't for sale. We give them freely to whoever needs them to whoever wants them or desires them. And I pray that if this church is ever led by men, motivated by money, or if motivation for money ever becomes the driving force of what we do, God would expose it, and we would repent, or God would kill this church, shut it down. We don't need another church like that. So far, it's been our conviction and practice as the crossing to be led by vocational ministers. And we've posted a lot of information about this on our social media platform, The City. If you're not on The City, it's like a private Facebook group. You can join it. Just let us know. Send us an email address, and we'll, we'll put you on there. You can go back to late April and find our latest update about where we're at financially as a church and how we spend what you give. We do this about every three months in our members' meetings. We want to be totally open and transparent about all of this. It's been our conviction to only have by vocational pastors for several reasons. Some of it's a necessity. We do, do not have the money to support anybody full-time. But we also see value in having our guys working and having a footprint in the city other than just the church world. We also find that it's it's really good that we're bivocational because it's imperative that other people step up and help lead. We only have so much time. We're very limited. And so as having bivocational leaders, we need to develop other leaders, which is imperative on us that we do a good job of that, to have other elders and other deacons and other volunteers. Will it always be like this? We don't know. That's how it is right now. But for now, it seems to be working. And as of this year, we're supporting our guys in a healthy, sustainable way so that they're not crushed by uh, too much pressure to provide for their needs. And it doesn't seem as though the gospel is being hindered as far as we can tell. But if you see something different, you have the Holy Spirit living inside of you. Let us know. Speak into that. We want other perspectives other than our own. So let's put all this together. So far, it just seems to be a sermon about churches paying ministers. Like you're thinking, if I knew it was going to be a business meeting, I might not have come today. (laughs) Let's make the connection uh, and make the application all of us. As I mentioned before, you have to see chapter 9 as part of this union, 8, 9, and 10. So Paul ends chapter 8 stating, I'm willing to give up my right to eat meat, become a vegetarian, in order to love my weaker brother. And Paul's possibly feeling the pushback from the stronger brothers. Why would you do that? Aren't you the Apostle Paul? Impose your will on them. Take advantage of your rights. So Paul paints a very strong picture of even greater rights and freedoms that he had, even more biblically sound rights and freedoms that he had to be supported by the local church, and his sacrifice of those freedoms and rights for the sake of the spread of the gospel. While defending his apostleship, while defending his conviction of why he takes this unusual approach of not being supported and providing an example of another reason why they should consider the spread of the gospel as more important than asserting their freedoms and rights. In other words, Paul says, I'm willing to die in order for the gospel to not be hindered. These arrogant, strong leaders seem to be saying, we're willing to die if we don't get what we want, have it our way and able to indulge our freedoms and our rights. So what about us? We who are the saints of God, children of our Father in heaven, brothers and sisters in Christ, the family of God, who have the same rights and freedoms that Paul and these believers had, what good things could or should we say no to in order to say yes to something that is better? Now make sure we get that distinction. We're not talking about saying no to sin. That's obvious. Chapters 8 and 9 are not talking about sinful choices. It's okay, you're not sinning to eat meat, you're sinning not loving your brother. Chapter 9 is perfectly okay to receive support from the local church. This is saying no to things that are good for things that are greater, like the spread of the gospel. The writer of Hebrews puts it like this, Hebrews 12.1, Therefore, since we also have such a large cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us lay aside every hindrance in the sin that so easily ensnares us, Let us run with endurance the race that lies before us. To run this race with endurance, we have to lay aside every hindrance in the sin which ensnares us. Now, sin is obvious, but what are hindrances? Hindrances could be understood as simply weights, like if you've ever run carrying weights, like on your back or on your ankles. Any weights that slow us down from running this race with endurance. Hindrances, in other words, could be things that are good that we've allowed to become too consuming or take the wrong priority, and thus we can't run. We're weighed down. Hindrances could be rights we are asserting or freedoms we are indulging to such a point that we are, in fact, putting a roadblock in the way of the gospel spreading in and through our life. And there might be some things that are good in and of themselves, but it's possible they've become our God, and we need to lay them completely aside. Or it could be things that we can't lay aside, like family, for instance. Family can become an idol, for sure. You can't lay your family aside, but you need to infuse that with gospel priority and purpose. One of the mistakes that we make in thinking through this sort of thing is that we start compartmentalizing our lives. So I just need to say yes to more religious things and say no to more secular things. Not necessarily. If, like, you're obsessed with Netflix... And it's consuming your life, you might need to lay Netflix aside for a month and make sure you're not worshiping Netflix. For sure. That could definitely be something you need to do. And then you might need to pick it back up and infuse it with gospel priority and purpose, where it's not so much solo screen time as much as time and community with people. And use it for gospel purposes and the spread of the gospel. What could these good things be? Like thinking through this idea personally, I've come up with a few for me that might be helpful to you and get you thinking about this. But I would also encourage you to make this part of your conversation at lunch. Make this part of your conversation in your missional community this week, if you're meeting, or in your DNA groups, if you're meeting this week. If you don't know what a missional community is or a DNA group is, please ask somebody before you leave so we can tell you. What good things can I say no to in order to say yes to better things? So I don't live a have it my way life, but I I live a have your way in me life which is what God desires for us. So, so one thing I had to say no to is always just being fun daddy. I love being fun daddy. Play with the kids, whether it's having conversations about music, movies, social media with the older kids, watching and enjoying those things with them, or just getting on the ground and wrestling with the boys or playing puzzles with Sarah. Like that is fun. I could just do that all the time. But sometimes fun daddy has to turn off fun daddy so that he can, uh, he, can, he can be point kids to Jesus daddy. Let's take what we're doing and see it in perspective of the gospel, how it points to our need of Jesus and how Jesus is more satisfying than even these fun things that we're doing. Or I have to be disciplined daddy. There's things we have to get done, kids. We can't just play all the time. So I'm saying no to good things like fun daddy. Just say yes to better things, gospel proclamation and discipline and self-control. By the way, Fun Daddy is the arch enemy of Bedtime Mama, in case you didn't know that. I also have to say no to comfort and ease all the time. There's nothing wrong with comfort. Like, we don't intentionally make ourselves miserable. We find the most miserable, most uncomfortable clothes that I could wear. I'm start wearing skinny jeans just because I'd be miserable in them because that would help me be more sanctified and trust Jesus, right? You're like, please don't. <clears throat> we choose comfort. Comfort's okay. We have a comfortable bed and we have comfortable chairs we sit in and, and comfortable clothes that we wear. Comfort in and of itself is not bad unless it becomes something we worship. So I enjoy comfortable relationships and comfortable conversation. And as long as I don't talk about the gospel or in need of Jesus, then those conversations always remain comfortable. So I need to say no at times to my, my love of comfort and ease, my desire for comfort and ease, so I can say yes greater things like gospel conversation or accountability conversations hard conversations and lastly I have to say no to my plans and be willing to be interrupted so I'm a planner, organizer always thinking about what's next and how to get there and, and, and that is a good thing in a, in a lot of ways it, it helps me, helps me stay sane, helps my family but, but if my plans are sovereign then anyone or anything that interrupts my plans can experience the wrath of Jared and that's not a good thing. So as I'm making plans and using the gifts that God's given me, I have to be okay with being interrupted. Because God's plans are more sovereign than my plans. And he knows things that I don't know. So I'm saying no to a good thing in order to say yes to a better thing, that he is sovereign. And he has things he desires for me to do that I can't plan. Because he's, he's, he's out ahead of me, preparing me for stuff that I don't even know is coming. So those are some personal examples that I hope uh, help you be, to be thinking through that for yourselves. What good things you need to say no to in order to say yes to better things, like gospel, spreading a proclamation. The, the great thing, the beautiful reality is this, Jesus has already done this for us. He says has already said no to good things, like the worship and adoration of all of creation, the worship and adoration of heaven. He left all of that behind in order to come and suffer and sacrifice his life for us so that we could be truly set free. Free to enjoy all that he's given us to enjoy and truly free to lay aside these freedoms because we love other people and because we love the gospel being spread. So if this is hard for you, if you're thinking, I don't know if I can do this, look to Jesus. He's done everything necessary for you to be able to do this. Trust him. Depend on him. Follow him. And it will begin to happen in your life. Look around at this room. There's a ton of people who want to help you figure this out in your life. So say no to what may be uncomfortable about gospel community, the conversations, the vulnerability, the transparency, to say yes to this thing called gospel community so that together we can be the people that God's created and called us to be. Father, we are thankful Jesus has done all of this. That's who we want to worship today. So help us. Help us to worship Jesus and how we respond right now and how we respond in the next several minutes and how we respond this week and beyond. May the Spirit of God help us to measure everything that we've heard, to hold fast to that which is good and helpful and beneficial, and to disregard those things that weren't. And may you be glorified in how you continue to work in your people. Bring salvation to anyone who might be here who needs to trust in Jesus and come alive in him. I ask and pray these things in your name. Amen.